believed Paul and believed his message, and they went with him and they followed him. Well, that did not set well with the other Jewish leaders. They were jealous of Paul's ministry and the success that it was having. So they incited a mob and went to take Paul and Silas out. But when they got to Jason's house, they weren't there. So they took Jason and they brought him before the city magistrates. And in order to kind of quell all of this, the magistrates demanded a peace bond from Jason, ensuring that this wouldn't happen again, and released him. And the brothers, fearing for Paul and Silas that there might be another attempt on them, ushered them out late at night to Berea. So we're going to fast forward now because Timothy, whom Paul had sent when he was in Athens to check on this Thessalonican church, Paul had only been there a very short period of time and had little time to really minister to them. And he was concerned about them. So Paul sent Timothy back to check on them. And now Timothy has returned and... uh, And so you've been summoned. Paul has been fasting and praying for two days now, and he's ready now to dictate this letter that you are to send to these believers in Thessalonica. And he begins this letter with this salutation. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, for the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And speak, Paul will go on to speak about he gives, how he's giving thanks to God for the brothers there and, com- and commends them for not only their faith, but for their love for one another and their willingness to suffer for the gospel for their being persecuted. And finally, they were willingly sharing the message with everyone throughout the region. And they, were, they were being commended for that. Now we're going to come to that part of the letter that will serve as our scripture this morning, which will be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which is to be found on page 986 of the Black Chair Bibles, which used to be Black Pew Bibles, but we don't have pews, so they're now Black Chair Bibles, and I think that's the correct term to use. But anyway, you know where the Bibles are at if you don't have your own or your own electronic device. Uh, I began this series, believe it or not, if you told it, called the second message in this series. Uh, I began this December 29th last year when uh, both of our pastors were out of town. And uh, so I was kind of looking ahead when I had this opportunity and thinking, okay, it's seven or eight months between these messages. And I look through the scriptures and I'm thinking, if the rapture just occur early enough, I won't have to preach on it when I get to uh, chapter four, verses 13 through 18. So anyway. Here's our morning's scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 12 verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to, de- to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, 
We were gentle among you like nursing mothers taking care of their own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Well, Timothy has reported to Paul that the church, in addition to being under severe persecution, was also being targeted as by a campaign to not only disc- to discredit Paul by questioning his motives, his ministry, and undermining the gospel. We're not told who those were that were conducting that campaign. Uh, it is very likely that it was the Jews that uh, were jealous of his ministry and that they, of course, were missing the converts, potential converts, when the great many of devout Jews le- or Greeks left. Uh, that would have cost them some money as well as some converts. And it's also very possible that the local temples and cults had lost members as well who had responded to the proclamation of the gospel. And they would like to have those people and their money back. So, but again, we're not told exactly who. We just know that there was an organized campaign against Paul and his ministry. So let's dive in. In verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Six times in these 12 verses, Paul asked the Thessalonians to remember, for you know in verse 1, as you know in verses 2, 5, and 11. For you remember in verse 9, you are witnesses in verse 10. For you know, for you know, brothers, yourselves, for you, get this right, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Steve Brown of Key Life Ministries often reminds people, do not forget in the dark what you learned in the light. I think it's very important. That's a message, I think, that can resonate with us. It definitely would work well for the Thessalonian church. Remember what Paul taught you when he was there. Don't forget that now in the dark. And Paul is telling the people in Thessalonia that his missionary trip was not a failure. It wasn't empty of any value or purpose. It wasn't vain. There was much that was accomplished there. And he had the courage to preach the gospel. And the Thessalonians were witnesses to the power of that gospel message in their lives. And they saw the changes that happened there. And that was a testimony, again, to the power of the gospel. Well, Paul had already commended them for putting their faith into action. And now he's reminding them again, remember what the gospel of of Jesus Christ has done in your life. So God's gospel has a new purpose, and that purpose is to save sinners. Well, in verse 2, Paul reminds them that we had suffered already and had been shamefully treated at Philippi. And recently, I have a part-time job that I'm an as-needed driver for the piecemeal program out of uh, Mattoon. It just happened that I was driving to Shelbyville one day and was listening to Mark Job on Bold Points radio program. And he just happened to be talking about Paul being in Philippi, and he just happened to talk about 
what happened when they were uh, beaten. And then Paul declares he and Silas are Roman citizens. And he had a perspective on that that I had never heard and had not considered before. But I think it's applicable not only to the church in Philippi, not only to the Thessalonians, but to us today. Because Paul did not announce his uh, citizenship early. Why did he not do that? Well, it's possible, it's very possible, that Paul wanted the, the Philippian church to be a witness of the cost of suffering for the gospel. The gospel is not some easy thing, easy believism, and perhaps you wealth and prosperity and all the times are good. There is a cost associated with the gospel. And that had he used his Roman citizenship to avoid the punishment that they, he and Silas would endure, the message might have been conveyed to them that the gospel is important up to a point where it begins to personally hurt you and then do whatever you can to avoid it. And then Erwin Luther suggested that also using his Roman citizenship may have spared the Philippian church uh, much harassment from the government officials. Whatever the purpose is, Paul is reminding them, look, I came to you from Philippi, and you know what I looked like when I got there. I didn't come in like some fat tourist, it's all sleek and wealthy looking and healthy. No, I come in still showing the marks of the beatings from Philippi. So they want to realize that there is a cost associated with the gospel, and Paul bore that physically so they could see that. In verse 3 he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Again, the Thessalonians were witnesses to Paul's proclaiming the gospel. And in this verse, he's denying three false claims from those who want to discredit him. First off, his message was true. It was not an error because it was God's message. They had heard and responded to the gospel <coughs> message because it was God's message. Paul said, examine your life as a witness to the truth of the gospel. Also, it was not impure. Uh, the Greek word there is archotherosa. I think that's close, uh, which can refer to sexual immorality, which might have been what was suggested here. Because it's possible that Timothy had heard reports that, oh yeah, Paul attracted these uh, leading women from the church, and they came and were meeting with him, and you know what happens in those kind of situations. You know, these other itinerant uh, teachers come through town and they get these women and uh, this is just the way, way it is. And Paul is emphatically denying that in any form. In any form. It also could mean that they thought he had false and uh, impure motives such as you know, maybe he wanted to be ambitious or he's prideful or he's greedy or, or seeking some popularity. Paul emphatically denies these claims and calls upon his readers to recall how he ministered to them while he was in Thessalonica. And lastly, his message was straightforward. It was not an attempt to deceive. They made no attempt to induce conversions. For example, by, by concealing the cost of discipleship or by offering fraudulent blessings. Um, God's gospel was preached fully without anything added or omitted from it. In other words, Paul did not hold an evangelism crusade where he pressured people to come forward, sign a card, say a prayer, be baptized. No, he preached the unadulterated word of God. And his body, again, bore the physical marks of the high cost of preaching the gospel, which they witnessed when he came 
to them from Philippi. Paul continues in verses 4 and 5, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Throughout this scripture, we're going to keep being reminded of God. Uh, Paul places emphasis upon God's message, and it came from God. And Paul here is saying, I'm not responsible to man. I'm responsible to God with this message. God had approved of Paul, having tested him and found him to be genuine. Paul was a seasoned missionary veteran uh, for the Lord. And since they thought to please God, the missionaries, their message was not crafted to be pleasing to man in the sense that it was flattering. Paul would later write in Timoth- to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now we know we don't need to look very far to find a message of, of that nature, whether in churches or on the various forms of media. There's always someone out there willing to tell you what you want to hear to make you think that this is your best life now. But for many, the gospel makes them uncomfortable. Yet the gospel is blessings to those who realize that they are lost and without any hope whatsoever. You can be certain that Christ's first church is committed to preaching the full gospel. We are not here to uh, offer flattering speeches uh, to tickle or itching for itching ears. And also, Paul points out, money was never his goal. God had and would continue to provide his needs as he does ours as well. In Philippians 4.19, Paul wrote, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It was true of that day that itinerant preachers of Paul's day made their living from telling people the messages that they wanted to hear. And they did that in order that they might attract followers and money as well. But God is Paul's witness to the truth of his message and the character of the man chosen to declare it. He again was reminding the men, right, reminding them now how, not only how he lived, but how he worked among them. And Paul continues this theme in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What might have been done as what they might have done as apostles was to be a burden on the Thessalonian church, either by standing upon his dignity and his, and his position as an apostle and issuing, order, issuing orders, or by insisting on being paid. And he reminds them again he did neither of these, which we will see in verse 9. The missionaries also were not seeking the praise of men, unlike the the uh, traveling philosophers and orators of their days. They sought only to please God and to be faithful to the message God had entrusted them with. And for that, the Thessalonians were truly blessed. In verses 7 through 9, Paul, Silas, and Timothy rightfully could have expected their converts to support them financially. They chose instead to minister to them. For he writes, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you 
not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become to us very dear. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Instead of making demands on the new believers, the preachers were as nursing mothers, unselfishly giving themselves to nurture them. They were attentive to the spiritual needs of the converts, but also their physical needs as well. And they placed the needs of the church over their own comfort. Mother of, mothers of infants know they have no life of their own. They are at the mercy of their baby. As uh, one person said, there's no time clock for mothers. You can't clock out at, at 9 o'clock and tell the kid to take care of itself and you'll be back at 7. Uh, it's a seven-day-a-week responsibility, and most mothers embrace that joyfully. But Paul uses this imagery to remind the church how the missionaries had devoted themselves to caring for them. And in verse 9, Paul also reminded them that they worked day and night to avoid being a burden to them. And again, Paul is calling on the Thessalonians to remember how they ministered to them, a ministry lacking in a, des in a desire for greed, or to be served, but a ministry that was devoted to meeting their needs, both spiritually and physically. In verses 10 through 12, which we conclude our with message with, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now Paul switches from the image of a nursing mother caring for her children to a father with the responsibilities of fatherhood. For in those days it was a common practice for sons to follow in their father's footsteps, whatever that profession may be. And the father was responsible for instructing them and disciplining them as well. So as we say, it's the father's responsibility to train the son. So it was the father, there was a minister's responsibility to train and to discipline the Thessalonians in the same way that fathers do that. But not only were they encouraging them, but they were also providing them with instruction as well as modeling. They lived their lives as a representation of the gospel message. So how do you live a godly life? Watch how the missionaries did there, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the others. That was the model for them. And again, he reminds them of a higher calling, the kingdom and the glory of God. The call to remember permeates this whole section of, of Paul's letters. I mentioned six times he calls them to remember. So when the detractors come and whispering messages to sow seeds of doubt, Paul says, remember, remember what God has already done for you. He has provided a savior so that, <clears throat> so that you can have a new life. Remembers God, remember God's word, which not only instructs, but also builds you up and will sustain you in the difficult times. Remember that you are not alone. God's spirit is with you always. Paul called the church, remember. And I think the same was applicable for us today. We need to remember when the good news of Jesus Christ came into our life and remember those times. One commentator observed uh, uh, with an application for this section of scripture. He says, here we have a wonderful illustration of how the knowledge of God should, be tra should transform us if we really believe God's truth. 
This again reinforces the truth that Christianity is a relationship with God that is to change us from the inside out. <clears throat> it's the inner person and the life of faith and the reality of the living God that must change us. Otherwise, we are like whitewashed sepulchers full of decaying corpuses. Well, at the heart of this message, and should be at the heart of any message, is the gospel. And Erwin Lutzer, on his broadcast Friday, I was working again, <clears throat> that reminds us that it's not the gospel about God. It's the gospel that belongs to God. And he says this, No man could have ever come up with a plan by which, by which the only way to redeem sinners is for God himself in the second person of the Trinity to come, be crucified as a, as a sacrifice, and then freely give eternal life to those who would turn and believe. Yes, God the Father loves and cares deeply for his children. This gospel which was preached to the Thessalonians is the same gospel that is available to us today. The message is simple. Christ died for our sins, was raised to new life, and we might also be raised to new life with him if we would just believe. To God be the glory. And let's pray. Father God, we just thank you this morning for the Holy Spirit-inspired words from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Those words were to encourage them and to equip them uh, in the face of not only persecution, but also with the uh, charges that were being leveled against Paul. And he wanted to respond to those, calling upon them to remember the nature of his work there and how you were being glorified. And Father, now as we look at this gospel message and we realize how precious a gift it is that you've given to us, it's the most precious thing we can ever receive. And yet you tell us this precious gift is for us to give away freely, that we are to share it with our family and our friends, our neighbors, in the workplace and on the campuses, and even with strangers that you send, to our, send our way. Father, what a precious gift this gospel message is and how freeing it is of a life of sin. And Father, as we just, as, as we prepare to close now, we just realize that this message of Jesus Christ is the only hope for a lost and dying world that there is out there. We just pray that you would bless that, bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen.